This morning's reading can be found on page 1532. It is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. Jesus at the temple. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. But you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. You have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Before I start the talk, I'd like to just read a further reading from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, just a really short Old Testament reading to give us some context. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Elaine, for reading. And let me add my welcome to St. John's this morning, especially if you're new or you're visiting. Um, if you have a Bible nearby, it'd be really helpful to have it open. Uh, I'm at page 1532, I'm planning to refer to that passage as I go through the talk. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Gospels which tell us about the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can hear Jesus' voice today as his teaching comes to us through what Matthew recorded. Help us to apply this teaching to ourselves and to our church so that we can change and become the people you wish us to be. Conform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at the context of this passage and what it teaches us. 
Now, Matthew's gospel opens with a prologue for the first couple of altars. It's followed by an introduction, chapters 3 and 4. And the rest of the gospel alternates between teaching and narrative. There's a section of teaching followed by a section where the action happens, another section of teaching, another section of narrative. So, for instance, that first teaching block, chapters 5 to 7, is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up to the Mount, he sits down, he teaches his disciples. That's the teaching block, and at chapter 8, it's back to the action again. Our passage today is uh, one of, in one of the narrative sections, which runs from chapter 19 to chapter 23. And if I was to suggest a title for the section, a sort of heading, so that we know where we are, it would be something like, Climaxing Confrontation with the Old Order. So a title of Climaxing Confrontation with the Old Order. The Old Order is there, and there's a confrontation between the Old Order and what Jesus is doing and saying. So in this section, we clearly see that the chief priests and the teachers of the law are actually rejecting Jesus as God's anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ. And towards the end of this section, uh, chapter 23, Jesus actually pronounces judgment on the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And the passage I read from Malachi uh, gives an overview of the action. Malachi happened 100 years before uh, Jesus, and and it's giving an overview of what's going to happen, God's prediction of what, what would happen. God's messenger has come and prepared the way. That's John the Baptist. And suddenly the Lord, the Israelites seek, has come to his temple. He's arrived at the temple. He's come. However, the rulers of the Israelites are unwilling or unable to accept him and receive him. Instead, these rulers, they reject Jesus. In response to all of this, Jesus refines his people and purifies them. A bit like our song, refining and purifying He teaches those who are listening and he pronounces judgment on those who are not listening and will not listen. His goal is to call to himself a people who are going to serve the Lord in righteousness in ways that are acceptable to him. So I think you're getting the picture. The tension is building as Jesus is challenging the old order and the old order reacts to Jesus. So the immediate background of our passage is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you just look up at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21 there, uh, Jesus is triumphantly entering on, the, on the, the foal of the donkey. The entry took place as prophesied. Humbly, he's riding on the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. People have welcomed Jesus. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everyone is asking, who is this guy? Who is this new arrival? Who is this person who's just arrived? And the first thing that Matthew tells us Jesus does after his arrival is he goes to temple. So let me read the first part of our passage. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So what do you think is happening? Did Jesus lose his temper 
Start driving out those who presumably were there with permission. These guys didn't just come and set up stalls clandestinely. They must have had permission. Did he turn over the tables of those who were authorized by temple officials to exchange foreign currencies for Jewish money in a fit of pique? As we're talking about the temple here, it seems pretty certain that the people occupying these places would have been there with the permission of the authorities. A proportion of the profits would have gone to temple funds, keep the building up and, and maintenance and upkeep and so on. This activity would have actually taken place in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer part of the temple, where foreign visitors would have gathered. And of course, people coming to worship God there would have needed to buy doves, as they would have needed to offer a sacrifice, needed, wanted something to offer. They'd also have needed Jewish money to pay the temple tax, hence the need for foreign exchange. If you're bringing Syrian, whatever they had in Syria in those days, and you need Jewish currency, you need to exchange your money, don't you? Maybe they even didn't have money, but they brought something that they could barter to get Jewish money to pay the temple tax. And so you needed some trading. You needed people who would accept the pig, or not, maybe not pig, but the cattle or whatever it was they brought, they would exchange them for, for Jewish money. So why does Jesus react in this way? These are authorized by the temple authorities, and they're, they're doing something that's necessary for the temple routines. What's going on? Jesus explains his actions in our passage in verse 13. Verse 13 says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. In that explanation, Jesus gives two quotes from the Old Testament. The first quote, Jeremiah, is Isaiah 56, verse 7. And the second quote is from Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 11. It's worth looking very carefully at those passages because they explain in detail why Jesus is insisting that the trading and other activities stop. Remember, of course, that the chief priests and the teachers of the law would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. So if he quotes a snippet, they would have known what comes before and after of each passage. So let me read Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Verse 7 reads, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The context is people who might think they're excluded from worshipping God at the temple. Isaiah 54, uh, 56 verse 4 talks about the eunuchs who were excluded, and that's part of the law. If you want to look it up, it's Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1. Eunuchs are not allowed. However, in this Isaiah passage, God includes the eunuchs. Isaiah 56, uh, verses 6 to 8, then goes on to state that foreigners, that's us, people from the UK would be foreigners to the temple, those who hold fast to God's covenant will be given away in God's house of prayer. God's temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So God wants to include the outsider. But what have the Israelites done? So we come to the other quote from Jeremiah. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The context of that second quote, that second passage that Jesus quotes from, is false worship by the people of Israel. 
at the time that passage was written, people would go to the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and they'd feel safe. But actually, their behavior was not what God requires. They were oppressing foreigners, oppressing widows and orphans, dealing unjustly with each other, shedding innocent blood, and following other gods. That's all mentioned in in that passage. They were stealing, murdering, committing adultery, committing perjury, burning incense to Baal, and following other gods. That's all mentioned in that passage as well. After all of those activities, which are counted to God's law, they would then come to the temple and say to themselves, we're safe because this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Acting in ways which were consistent with being God's people. God then warns them that destruction and punishment, including being thrust out of the Lord's presence, are coming. So, Jesus is far from having a fit of pique against trade in the temple. He's cleansing the temple by requiring the people to remember what God's will is. He's the God of inclusion, not exclusion. Foreigners are to be admitted so that they can pray in the temple, not excluded or overcharged or ripped off by overpriced merchants. God's house must be a house of prayer for all nations. In this case, instead, the temple authorities and merchants had dreamt up ways of creating barriers and acting unjustly against foreigners. Well, let's pause for a moment and think through the so what and the now what questions to that passage based on what we've read so far. Well, surely that was then... And today, none of us could be accused of excluding anyone from God's presence, ripping them off, or charging them to come to church. Really? Well, I think if we're honest, we can put off quite a lot of people. Maybe our methods are different, but the effect might be similar. Look at our strange rituals. We use very peculiar language sometimes. We stand up sometimes, we sit down other times, not clear why. Some of the songs that we sing are only known to us, other people don't know them. They come in and they go, oh, I don't know this one. When someone new comes to a church service, do we go and look, ooh, that's, that person's new, ooh, strange. Do we gawp at them? Or do we say, oh, hello. How do we greet them? Do we greet them and welcome them in a normal way? And when we pass the collection plate around, are we asking for money? Maybe sometimes some of the words of knowledge and things that we say up front sound a bit wacky and weird. A coffee after the service. Do we all seek out the newcomer, queue up and say, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Or do they just sit in the corner? Oh, this person's new. Not sure about that. Hmm. Hmm. Do we know that God's plan is to include anyone who wants to find out about God's covenant and how to hold fast to it. Food for thought. What about our communion ritual? A bit wooden, a bit away, a bit ponderous, hard to follow. When do we go forward? When do we stand back? A bit of waiting around. Are you sure what to do? If we know, we know, it's fine. It's, we all know, but if you don't know, maybe it's a bit difficult. 
inaccessible. Think about other times outside of church when we're out and about. Do we talk naturally to people about Jesus, to those around us, in ways that are inviting and friendly? Or do we sometimes sound super spiritual when we talk about our faith? Maybe we think of, people will then think, hmm, maybe it's not for me. It's all right for you, but I'm not sure it's for me. Do we sometimes also pigeonhole people, someone we know that we think they'll never be interested in Jesus? So we pigeonhole them and we exclude them in that way. We never even give them the opportunity of saying no. Hmm, food for thought. Let's come back to our passage and read on. It gets worse, if possible. Let me read the next part. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him, that is Jesus, at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you not said, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So here is another group of people who were excluded from the temple, the blind and the lame. So what does Jesus do? He takes action and heals them. And so before they were excluded, unable to get uh, get into the temple, now they can gain access to the temple. They can go and enter inside, because blind and lame people were not allowed to go in. But when you stop being blind and lame, you're allowed to go in. Imagine what it might have felt like to be blind and lame in the first century. Not only would you have been unable to work and earn a living because there was no social security, no safety net or anything then, you would also have been ritually unclean, unable to enter the temple, unable to pray to God. So what does Jesus do? He deals with the situation. He heals them. And outsiders are now brought in and included because of Jesus' gracious action in healing them. Imagine how they would have felt for a moment, something maybe a cross between hearing that you've been cured from cancer, hearing you've received a legacy from an unknown great aunt, long forgotten, uh, that's going to solve all your money worries, and maybe on top of that, you're suddenly long pitted into God's people as a full member after a long, long, perhaps a lifelong period of exclusion. You're in. Imagine those three things all together. They would have been smiling from ear to ear. They would have been rejoicing, praising God, jumping, dancing, singing. And some of the children heard about it, and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save, and it was an expression of praise. Let's just turn now to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. How should they have reacted? Joy? Thanksgiving, of course. Great news. These people were lame and blind, begging at the temple gate. Now they can come in. They've been transformed into a group that was in full party mode. But how do they react? Our passage is really stark, isn't it? It says, they were indignant. What's the cause of their indignation? Why are they upset? Why won't they dance and party? It's there in verse 16, isn't it? Do you hear what these children are saying? They said to Jesus, or they asked Jesus. And the implication of the question is that the children are wrong. The people 
are wrong. The people had said the same as the children. When Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem, they said, Hosanna to the son of... The implic in verse 9, it's just a, a bit earlier in the passage. The implication from the chief priests and the teachers of the law is that the, the children should stop saying that. They should stop that heresy and not call Jesus the son of God, God's Messiah. There's a party going on and they say, shouldn't do that. What a bunch of sour pusses. Not only that, they're also illogical and perhaps terminally stubborn, not believing the evidence of their own eyes as these people who are lame are dancing, or were lame and are dancing. The blind are there. They're rejoicing, they can see. The lame are there, springing around, dancing with joy. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law would have seen it, and yet they're unmoved. They're just indignant. They put that to one side. They question Jesus' identity and his authority. They are spiritually blind, refusing to acknowledge the evidence of their own eyes. So Jesus then rebukes them. Yes, replies Jesus, I hear what the children are saying, but have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. That quote is from Psalm 8, verse 2. And I guess then Jesus leaves them to think things over. And his point is that children have got it right. And the learned chief priests and teachers of the law are hopelessly and tragically mistaken. Indeed, as the context of Psalm 8 shows, they're acting as God's enemies, opposing God. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's think about so what and now what in connection with this part of our passage. Now, Surely today, no one could possibly mistake who Jesus is. We've got the benefit of the full Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the scholarship and research at our disposal. Today, everyone knows who Jesus is, surely, isn't it, don't they? Or do they? Today, I would suggest to you that many are completely confused about who Jesus is. Our spiritual rulers and leaders, our government, many MPs are all at sea about who Jesus is and what he requires. Situation today, perhaps intellectuals putting forward more and more bizarre theories and complicated ideas about the Bible, authorship, is it genuine, what does it mean, who is Jesus, can we trust what's written as original, etc., etc. It's a bit of a cacophony out there. Um, just a personal thing, Sarah and I listen to Radio 4 as we're waking up and getting going most mornings. And thought for the day is interesting, isn't it? It's been reduced to a lottery of opinions and views from leaders of various faiths and none as they regale us with their thinking. Some are banal and irrelevant. Some are weird and appeal to unverified arcane texts of dubious origin, let alone value, as a guide to right thinking. Very few of the speakers mention Jesus at all. Some of those that do are vaguely apologetic. Sorry, put Jesus in. Oops. Uh, and they suggest that's duty rather than substantive belief. 
like the children of our passage. What did the children say? They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Some of our speakers say, well, Jesus, this, Jesus, that. Just a whisper. It's not good, is it? And if that applies to Posh Radio 4, how much more to the press, the websites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Weibo. Weibo Weibo is actually a Chinese social media platform, 445 million active monthly users in China, and its it's, uh, market capitalization is $30 billion. It's a huge channel. All these channels are going out there, putting out misinformation, confusion. You see that today, most of us are more confused than the chief priests and the teachers of the law were in our passage. The chief priests denied the evidence of their own eyes. People in the world today often deny the evidence that's been written down and carefully preserved over thousands of years for them in the shape of the Bible. Far from proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, our world is talking about everything else, indeed anything else, So that question which Jesus addresses in our passage, who is he? Who is Jesus? That question is really the presenting issue in our world today. Is Jesus really the son of David, God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? If anything, the confusion today is worse than it was then. At least then, the children had a good idea about the right answer. So what do we need to do? Well, let me suggest two things. Firstly, if you don't know who Jesus is, find out. Christianics Explored is running on Sunday mornings uh, from 10 till 11.30, and again on Wednesday evenings from 5 till 6, or speak to in the church center next door. Please check our website, take a look at your grapevine, or speak to Matt or me or anyone else. We'd be more than happy to point you in the right direction. Secondly, if you do know who Jesus is, then do learn how to talk about him to others. Join a home group, perhaps. A great place is to encourage one another to learn, grow, and to reach out to friends, neighbors, colleagues, relatives, etc. There is a lot of confusion out there. You can help share the truth and save lives of any who will look into and get to know and ultimately hold fast to the covenant of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and reaching into our hearts to shape us more and more into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read about how the Lord Jesus revealed himself to the leaders and the people of Israel, we acknowledge that many in our age and in our country and in our time do not know him. Move us to action, we pray. Show us how to respond to this challenge, either by finding out who is ourselves or by learning how to share who he is with others. We ask these things in in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our risen Lord. Amen.